the children can go off to Kingdom Kids. We love you and God bless you as you learn more about him. And then for the rest of us, you can turn in the Belgian Confession to Article 1. You can find that on page 499 of your books of praise. Page 499, the Belgian Confession, Article 1. So we just sang hymn 63, which is a prayer saying, Your name be hallowed and adored. Teach us to know you from your word, to know God and to be able to praise and glorify him is what we're speaking about this afternoon. And we're looking at Belgian Confession, Article 1, which is entitled, There is Only One God. So I'm going to read that for us. Article 1, There is Only One God. We all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is only one God who is a simple and spiritual being. He is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, immutable, infinite, almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of all good. So brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, I have a question for you to start off with and I'm wondering if perhaps some people would be willing to respond. Here's the question. What comes to your mind when you think about God? Yes. Glorious. All right. What comes to your mind when you think about God? Love? Mm -hmm. Anybody else? Just? All right. It's a, yeah. Father? I think if we were to go through all of us and survey, we would have a whole bunch of different answers. It's actually a very, very important question. What comes to your mind when you think about God? What comes to our mind when we think about God is perhaps the most important thing about us. That's a quote from this book by A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy. I mentioned it in the bulletin in the pastor column today. The most important fact about any person, says Tozer, is not what he or she is doing or, or even uh, saying at a certain time or place. The most important thing about you as a person is what you think about God, what you conceive in your heart God to be like. And he goes on to argue that that's also for true for the church of Jesus Christ. Always the most revealing thing about the church of Jesus Christ is what the church believes and confesses about who God is. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way, as we think about God, so we worship. As we think about God, so we worship. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now there was an ancient Greek philosopher hundreds of years before Jesus Christ named Xenophens, and he said this, if horses or cows or lions could draw pictures, they would draw pictures of God that looked like horses and cows and lions. And his point was this, is that we all have the tendency to imagine or think about God as if he's like us. And that's certainly true for human beings too. We have the tendency, the wrong tendency, to think about God as if he's like us. 
In fact, Psalm 50 has a rebuke that the Lord gives to his people, and the rebuke is this, you thought that I was like you. You thought that I was like you, but it's not true. In fact, God is not exactly like anything. God's not exactly like anything. He's very, very different. And in fact, one of the first things that was we, as we look at Article 1 is that we have to confess that, as the article says, that God is incomprehensible, that we cannot understand him. We cannot understand God. You thought I was like you, but I'm not. Isaiah 55 says it this way, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, Isaiah's picking the, the, the two things that seem the farthest away from each other, the earth and the, and the clouds, and he's saying that's how different you and God are. You can't understand them. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 11, Paul says, for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Only God knows what God is really like. Humans don't. None of you know what God is really like. Now, we're not agnostics. An agnostic person would say, well, God cannot be known. And we would say, no, God can be known. And a skeptic, a skeptic would say, well, God cannot be truly known. And we would say, no, God can be known, and he can be truly known, he just can't be fully known. We can't understand all of him, we just understand, can understand part of him, we understand partly. So we confess in 1 Corinthians 13 with Paul, for now we only see a, a reflection as in a mirror, then, that is in eternity, we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. Now I only know in part. We, we, only, we know God truly, and we, we do really know him, but we only know in part. And if you were to skip ahead to Belgian Confession Article 2, there it talks about knowing God as far as is necessary for us in this life to his glory and our salvation. So the Lord reveals himself to us, and we are able to, full, to know him as much as is necessary, but that's only in part. We cannot really comprehend and understand God. Our finite human minds cannot really fully understand the infinite God. It's impossible for us to figure out. Thomas Manton said it like this, we know God as men born blind know fire. Person born blind can know fire, they can feel the heat, and they can, feel the, you know, they can feel the pain if they put their hands on it. They know that fire exists, but they don't really know fire like someone who's born with their eyes working. And in the same way, we can know God's attributes and we can know part of whom God is, but we can't really know God in the same way. Martin Luther said it this way, we can't see God in the nude. That's the way he put it. You can't see God in the nude. In other words, you can't see him as he really is. Only God himself knows himself as he truly is. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. We just read in Psalm 145. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain it, Psalm 139. God is beyond us. 
But that doesn't mean that we just say, well, well, we can't quite understand God, he's, he's uncomprehendable, we just put our hands in our pockets and stop there. No, it is very important that the ideas that we do have about God, the thoughts that we do have about, about God, correspond as nearly as possible as they can to the true being of God. We wanna think right thoughts about God. A right conception of God is very basic to the whole of Christian living. Knowledge of God, you could say, is like the foundation of a house. If you don't know God well, as he's revealed in scripture, then the foundation is, is crooked or it's off and you build your house on it and your house is gonna crack and crumble apart or fall over if you don't have that right. So I'd like to just read a, a couple of words out of this book, The Knowledge of, Holy, uh, Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, where he says this. When viewed from the perspective of eternity, the most critical need of this hour well may, may well be that the church should be brought back from her long Babylonian captivity and the name of God be glorified in her again as of old. What can we plain Christians do to bring back the departed glory? Is there some secret we must learn? Is there a formula, formula for personal revival that we can apply to the present situation, to our own situation? The answers to this question is yes. Yet the answer might disappoint some persons, he says, for it is anything but profound. I bring no esoteric cryptogram, no mystic code to be painfully deciphered. I appeal to no hidden law of the unconscious, no occult knowledge meant only for a few. The secret is an open one, which the wayfaring man may read. It is simply the old and every new counsel, acquaint thyself with God. To regain her lost power, the church must see heaven opened and have a transforming vision of God. And so that's what we want to attempt to start here this afternoon in this, our teaching service, looking at the Belgian Confession, Article 1, to acquaint ourselves anew with God. God's incomprehensible, but he is knowable, truly knowable as far as necessary for us. And so we're gonna look at the various attributes or sometimes called the perfections of God as they're found in Belgian Confession Article 1. And our goal is to think right thoughts about God, acquaint ourselves with God, so that even as we study this article, we can worship God for the glorious God that he is. With Psalm 145, on the glorious, majest- the glorious splendor of your majesty, I will meditate and I will declare your greatness and pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. So let's do that together. The the article starts with this. We all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is only one God. So that means as Christians, we are monotheists. We believe that there is only one God. And that means that God is one and he is the creator and everything else is the creation, okay? Including the devil. It's not like God and the devil are like yin and yangs, equal forces of, uh, of good and evil in the world. No, there is God, and then there's, there's just the created stuff, and the devil's way down there. He's not an equal with God. In Deuteronomy 4 we read, acknowledge and to take heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below, there is no other. Deuteronomy 32, see now that I myself am he, there is no God besides me. Isaiah 44, oops, for I am the first and the last, apart from me, there is no God. 
That's what we confess, isn't it? Almost every week, we confess it with the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God. The Nicene Creed, we believe in one God. The Athanasian Creed, the Catholic faith is this, we worship one God. It all comes from scripture, John 7, 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. And so it is not okay that there are people that you work with and that you live with and that you're related to and that you walk past and drive past today that worship other gods. That's not okay. Because there is only one God. All the other so-called gods are not gods. And then the confession says this, there's only one God who is a simple and spiritual being. So let's talk briefly about the spiritual part, that one we get. John 4 verse 24 says God is spirit. And that means, for instance, that God does not have male or female biology. Now God the Father describes himself in scripture as father, but that doesn't mean that he's biologically male, okay? God is spirit. Colossians 1.15 says the Son is the image of the invisible God. So Jesus, of course, is a man, biologically a man, and he's the image of the invisible God, but the invisible, the spiritual God, is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. And John 1 verse 18 says nobody has seen God because you can't see a spirit. Sometimes God, throughout the history of, uh, of Revelation, has, has manifested himself in certain ways so he can be seen, the angel of the Lord, for instance. But he exists as he is as spirit. You can't see him. He is spirit. And then it says that he's a simple and spiritual being. So what does that mean? It does not mean that he's simplistic or that he's a simpleton. But that God is a simple being. You can think of it a little bit like this. I'm no science guy, but I have a couple of kids who are good in science. You have the, the, t- the periodic table of elements. And the periodic table of ele- elements, every element is a simple or basic element. You can't divide it into anything else. And God's a little bit like that. He's simple in that you can't divide him. You can't break him down into anything else. All right? You can't break God down, for instance, into his different attributes. All right? What we mean by that is that God is his attributes and in him all his attributes is one. He is 100% himself all of the time. So we have these list of perfections or attributes, but you can't sort of like, you can't take God and divide him up like an apple pie and say, well, I'll have the love part or I'll have the, the eternal part, right? God is 100% all of his attributes all of the time. And that's important, for instance, because there's a lot of people who would like to just take one part of the God pie and worship that part, all right? So you might have people who would say, well, God is love. That's true. And so they say God is love, and so we can ignore him being the God who's also a judge. But you can't do that because God's a simple being. You can't play off his attributes or his perfections against each other. You can't divide them up. If you do that, if you begin to divide God up, if you don't worship him as a simple being, well then you run into all kinds of problems. Your theology will change and how you do mission will change and what you include in your liturgy will change and, and you'll, get all, you'll get all mixed up. You see how it's important. The most important thing actually for a person or for a church is what we think about God, how we understand him. So he's a simple and spiritual being and then the article says he is eternal. So 
I had somebody in my catechism class, in the junior catechism class last week, told me that when they think about God being eternal, they get kind of scared. And there's something scary to the idea of eternity. Sometimes I get that when I think about the vastness of space. Perhaps some of you have seen that image. It's a photographic image from, I forget, you know, uh, which satellite we sent out, and it took a picture of Earth as it passed Plato, uh, uh, Pluto, not Plato, and it was this, you know, this, this, you know, this image of space, and there was this, this tiny little pale blue dot that was Earth. And you're like, whoa, so small, it's vast universe, and where is the end of it? What, what happens at the end of the universe? We don't know, it's this eternal eternal immensity and, and that could be scary. I remember years and years ago we watched a video at home uh, that was a creation video and it was showing the size of the earth and the size of the sun in, in, in perspective and it showed the earth is this big and the sun is this big and then it shrunk the sun down to this and it showed the next biggest star and then it shrunk that one down and it showed the next biggest and, and as I was going and one of our kids was like, oh dad, when the first time I saw that it made me so scared. There's something scary about the idea of eternity. Psalm 90 verse two says, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 102 says, but you remain the same, your years never end. Daniel four says, God lives forever. Now this is, get, this is where it sort of gets mind-blowing, you often think about the eternity of God as if God's on a timeline and then there's an arrow on each end. Like it just keeps on going. He never had a beginning and he never had an end. Now that's scary enough, but actually that even is not an accurate description of who God is or what God is. Because God is, is more than just a timeline that goes forever in every direction. God is infinity in relationship to time. He's above time. He's not subject to time. He can take that infinite timeline and he can swivel it around and look at it like this. He can, he can look at it through it. He can, he's above and outside of time. To, him there, to God there is, there is no past and no future. To God there is just an eternal present. He can know the past and the future and the present in one spot. The Bible says that God not only does, has no beginning and no end, but God is the beginning and is the end. He is the alpha and he is the omega. He exists in one indivisible present, eternal present. He's the God who is and the God who was and the God who is to come all at the same time. You get a little bit of a glimpse of how this God is so uncomprehensible, how little we can really grasp with him. Psalm 96 says, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness and tremble before him. It's true and even right that we get a little bit scared sometimes when we think of eternity and how small we are. And it's right also that scripture says, fear the Lord and tremble before him. Have you any idea of who God is and how small and tiny you are in comparison? God's not our buddy and he's not our boyfriend. He's the one God, incomprehensible, simple, spiritual, and eternally outside of time. The next thing it says is that God is incomprehensible, invisible, we've talked about those, immutable. What does that mean? Immutable, it sounds a bit like you can't stop him from talking, but that's not what it says. 
immutable means that he does not change. God does not change. So have you ever had it where, where someone looks at an old photo of you and they're like, oh, you haven't changed a bit, you know? Sometimes people do that to be polite, right? Like they, you, you post a picture on Facebook of 10 years ago, oh, you haven't changed a bit. And meanwhile, they're like, you got a lot more wrinkles now. Well, if you were to look at God now and if you were to look to at him a million years in the past, he wouldn't have changed a bit, not even a bit. God does not change. In Malachi 6 we read, for I the Lord do not change. Numbers 23 says, God is not a human being that he should change his mind. Psalm 18 verse two says, he is a rock. Maybe you have something from your childhood that you, you, know, you go see, your, your childhood home or town and you go back there and you're like, oh there's lots of things that cha- have, have changed but that hasn't changed. That's still the same as I remember it. It's the same way with God. God does not change. If you were to you know, go to heaven and talk to Abraham or Moses and they talked about God, it would be exactly the same God that you know. God does not change. He's immutable, unchangeable in his essence, in who he is. There was never a time that he was different. He's also immutable or unchangeable in his attributes. He doesn't change his perfections. God doesn't grow up. He doesn't mature. He doesn't change over time. He's the same God all the time. He's the same God in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. His steadfast love endures forever. Your word, O Lord eternal, stands firm in the heavens. All these things about God do not change. Some of you might be thinking, yeah, well, what about those things when I read in the Bible where it says that God changed his mind? because we do have a couple of occasions where it says God changed his mind. Those parts of the Bible, they're using language, human language, to explain to us that God is not some sort of cold and, and unemotional being, but that he does interact with our circumstances, and yet it's not true that God changes his mind like we change our mind. Nothing ever surprises God. He doesn't change the eternal counsel of his will. He's not like us, he's He's always the same. He's immutable. And then the next one says that God is infinite. I like this quote from Thomas Watson. God's center is everywhere, his circumference is nowhere. God's center is everywhere and his circumference is nowhere. Sometimes we hear people say things like, well, you can't put God in a box. Usually when someone says that is they're trying to advocate for their own perspective on God and they're telling you that your perspective is wrong. Don't put God in a box. And yet it is true that you can't shut God in and you can't shut God out because he is infinite, he has no limits. Psalm 139 we read, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your, from your presence? His infinity is his, uh, is, uh, his infinity is his immensity. He's everywhere present. He's omnipresent. God's there when you go to bed at night. And he's there when you go skating on the canal. And he's there with your grandma or your mom in heaven. And he's there with the little baby in the mom's tummy. He is in all places. People might ask, where's God? The better question is, where is he not? He's infinite. Sometimes you hear people, you know, uh, you know good, good Christian people will say things like, oh Lord, we invite you into our presence. Come on. 
You don't invite the infinite God into your presence. You tremble in fear because you live in his presence every second of your life. He's infinite. We live quorum Deo, before the face of God, wherever we are and, where, and wherever we might find ourselves. He's infinite and he's also un- infinite and unlimited in all of his characteristics. That means there's no limits to his eternity and there's no limits to his immutability and there's no limits to his power and there's no limits to his wisdom and there's no limits to his justice and there's no limits to his goodness. He's limitless in all of his attributes and his perfections, which means something really cool. That means that we will always grow in our knowledge of God. As finite human beings of an infinite, unlimited God, we can always grow in our knowledge of God. And that means when you go to heaven or when the Lord comes to earth in the new heaven and a new earth, when you live with the Lord, you can eternally grow in your understanding and appreciation and love of God. Continuously, eternally, because he is without limits. He's infinite and then the the Belgian Confession says he is almighty. This is one that we seem to know more. In Genesis seven verse one he says, I am God almighty. I am the Alpha and the Omega, he says in Revelation, the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Genesis 18 verse 14 asks this question. Is anything too difficult for God? The answer is no, because he is almighty. Mark 10, which we read this morning, says, with God all things are possible. You know that kid's song, My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Remember that one? Who knows that song? Yeah, we know that song. So, is that true, by the way, that there is nothing that my God cannot do? Is that true? Hmm, it's kind of a trick question. It is true, God, it is true in a certain way. But there are some things that God cannot do. There are some things that God cannot do. He can't lie. He can't deny himself. He also can't do things like make a two-sided triangle. Sort of, you know, absurd. Maybe you've heard people ask questions that things like, can God make a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? Right? That's false because that doesn't make any sense. That's an absurdity. God is all powerful, but there are, of course there are certain things that he cannot do because he only does the things that are in line with his holy character. When we confess that God is almighty, this is what we confess, that God can do whatever he intends to do, that he can do whatever he wills and that which is in agreement with his will and his other attributes. There's nothing too hard for him. God never gets too tired. God never says, ooh, that's, that's gonna be too difficult for me. No, because he's almighty. Nothing can stop him from what he wants to do. And this doctrine comes, comes out beautifully in the Heidelberg Catechism, question answer 26, listen to this. In him, I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul and will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. He's able to do so as almighty God. He can do what he wants because he's almighty God. So yes, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do for you and you and you and you and you. He is almighty, that is true in the church of God. 
Next, our confession says that he's perfectly wise. So wisdom would be the skillful application of knowledge. So maybe you know a, a, a particularly wise person in your life. In the Bible, we would think of Solomon as a wise person, but a, a wise person can also be someone that's, that's got good knowledge and is able to practically apply that in, in creating something or making something. So God, his, his knowledge is infinite, and then his wise application of that knowledge is perfect. He always uses his knowledge in a perfectly skillful way to bring himself the greatest glory and to bring the church the greatest joy. And because he's simple, we speak of his wisdom as an eternal wisdom and an incomprehensible wisdom and an infinite wisdom and an almighty wisdom. They all go together. Psalm 147 says, great is our Lord and mighty in power. His wisdom has no limit. All of the characteristics as a simple and spiritual being fit together. And we see God's wisdom all around us, don't we? We see it in creation. You study creation a little bit, and we'll speak about that next week in Article 2. You see the, the fine-tuning of the universe, the way that God has, in his infinite wisdom, has fine-tuned the universe just perfectly so that we can live. If just the slightest thing was off, none of us would be able to exist. So we see it in creation. We also see it in our own creation as, as human beings that he knits us together in our mother's womb that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, that God has paid all kinds of meticulous detail to, to making us as human beings and then setting us in families. And you know, it's all an example of his wise work, his beautiful craftsmanship as the great and wise God. On the sp glorious splendor of your majesty, I will meditate, we read in Psalm 145. I will declare your, greatest, your, your greatness and pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. So think about this, each one of you, every single person here to this afternoon, no exceptions, are an example of the creative wisdom of God. The way that you've been made, you are an example of the creative wisdom of God. God doesn't make mistakes. None of you are mistakes, none of you are expendable. Every single one of you here, no matter what you happen to think about yourself, have been beautifully handcrafted by the perfectly wise creator. He made you perfect according to his plans. No matter your abilities, no matter your developments, no matter your limitations, no matter your looks, no matter how many chromosomes you have, the perfectly wise God has crafted you in his perfect wisdom. Praise the Lord. And then, of course, we see this perfect wisdom at play in the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, we read that the wisdom of God, the wisdom of the cross that appears foolish to the perishing world is the power and the wisdom of God for those who are called, the skillful application of his infinite wisdom coming to play at the cross of Christ as Jesus comes to save the world from its sins. Romans 16, 27, to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who is the wisdom of God and shows us this beautiful attribute of our Lord. The confession says he's perfectly wise and he's just. So justice, as the senior catechism students might remember from a couple of weeks ago, God's justice is his faithfulness to his covenant laws. 
His justice is his faithfulness to his covenant laws. Psalm seven says God is a righteous judge administrating law without discrimination. God administers law without discrimination. Acts 17.31 says he has set a day when he's gonna judge the world with justice, with fairness, with faithfulness according to his covenant laws that he's laid out. You can depend on God to do what he says every time. He's faithful to his promised covenant blessings and he's faithful to his promised covenant curses. Now here's the thing. We had a great discussion in our senior catechism class and someone said, you know, I think we kind of like the mercy of God for ourselves but we don't like the justice of God for ourselves. And it is true, often when we think about what we, in God's justice, he should give us, we don't like that. And yet when we think about it, we actually all like the idea of justice. People used to ask me, well, what, what, what do you think a country like Mali and West Africa, what do they really need? Well, it's not just one thing. But I do think that the rule of law, that people can depend on justice in a country, can go a far way to giving people confidence. That you can rely on that if the law says this, then it will be applied as so. We all want to live in a country like that. and We count on the rule of law. We want things to be fair. And that's what God is like. God is just. He's faithful to the way he's laid out things in his covenant law. And later on the Belgian Confession, it talks about the justice and the mercy of God and how those things come together in Christ. Because the cross is is God's justice. Him saying the covenant, uh, his covenant uh, law concerning the curses of the covenant, I'm going to execute those as promised, but I'm gonna do it on Christ. And the covenant blessings will come as well, and they'll come on you because of Jesus. Finally, it says that God is good, and he's the overflowing fountain of all good. I love Psalm 34, which says, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's that you know, relatively famous story, perhaps a, an urban myth, about a professor who's in front of a class and who's talking about how you know, God's not a good person, obviously not good, and he's, and he's making God to look out to be pitiful and you know, trying, to, trying to be really mean toward Christians, and a man stands up and he takes out his apple and he takes a big bite, and he goes, gum, 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 and he says to the professor, is this apple sweet? And the professor says, well, I don't know, and he's like, that's right, because you haven't tasted it. And scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Those who have put their faith in Christ know that the Lord is good. And so we sing, for instance, with the, with the psalmist, Psalm 100, these beautiful words in, in Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. He who made us, we are his. We're the sheep, his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless the Lord, for the Lord is good. And his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. God is good means that he, he's kind with us and he's loving toward us, and he freely gives us what we need, we know that. He's kind and he's benevolent and he's full of goodwill and he's tender-hearted and he's quickly sympathetic and he's open and he's friendly and he's inclined to bestow blessedness and he takes pleasure in the happiness of his people. He's a good God. Sometimes we, we say things to people who love us, we might say something like, oh, you're, you're, you're too good to me. You're too good to me. God's always too good to us. It's called grace. 
God is good, perfectly, eternally good to us. And he's also the overflowing fountain of all goodness. In, in um, James, Jesus' brother, and Matthew, they talk about how all goodness comes from God. All light comes from the Lord. He's infinitely good, eternally good, from, and he's from uh, him that all other goodness flows. Which means that when you look out in the world and you see something good in the world, whether it's Christian or not, you can praise the Lord because all goodness comes through God, the ever-flowing fountain of goodness. It's all of this, brothers and sisters, his goodness, it's in accord with all of his other attributes. It's good because it's part of his character. Sometimes people, you can come up with a philosophical question, like, is something good because God says it's good or is something good because it's good and God recognizes it as such? And the answer is the first one. God, something is good because God has said it is good. Not in some sort of arbitrary way that he just plucked something out of the air and said this was good, but it's good because it resonates with his character. What is good and right in the world is what flows from the fountain of God's eternal goodness as the one true God. And you know, this is, this is a short article. We've just gone through all of the attributes. And we could go on and on and on. This little book, which I highly recommend, it, it has 23 chapters to look at many more attributes of God. This is just a limited list, but it's already just a little list that helps us get to acquaint, acquaint ourselves with God a little bit more. To acquaint ourselves with the incomprehensible God. So when the thought of God comes to your mind, you need to think about him as the one true God, the simple and spiritual being, eternal and incomprehensible and invisible, immutable and infinite, almighty and perfectly wise, just good and the ever-flowing fountain of good. Think about that, meditate on that and give glory to God. But then don't just keep that for yourself. As you grow in an intensified knowledge of God, then make your life and the life of this church a life that hallows God and praises him and shares that with others. Let me read you the last paragraph of this book. How do we go about sharing the goodness of God, the, the glory of God, who he is with others? This we can best do by keeping the majesty of God in full force in all our public services. Not only our private prayers should be filled with God, but our witnessing, our singing, our preaching, our writing should center around the person of our holy, holy Lord and continually extol the greatness of his dignity and power. There is a glorified man on the right hand of the majesty in heaven faithfully representing us there. We are left for a season among men. Let us faithfully represent him here. Amen. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, Father in heaven, we extol you, our God and King, and we bless your holy name forever and ever. And every day we will bless you and praise your name forever and ever, for you are great, Lord, and greatly to be praised, and we confess that your greatness is unsearchable. And one generation shall commend your works to another, and we declare your mighty acts. And we here this afternoon Meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. That speak of your might and your awesome deeds and we declare your greatness and we pour out the fame of your abundant goodness 
and we shall sing aloud of your righteousness. For you, Lord, are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you are good, Lord, to all. And your mercy is over all you have made, and all your works give you thanks, Lord, and us, all your saints, shall bless you and speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power and make known to our children your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. For your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. You, Lord, are faithful in all your words and you are kind in all your works and we will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.